You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome to tfm's books and comic show and i'm excited to be back of course my name is matthew rushing and with me as he is pretty much all the time these days the wonderful talented amazing human being known as bruce gibson hi this is bruce gibson oh wait you already said that hi everyone how are you? <laughs> <laughs> I think they just said they're doing well. Um, it's too bad this isn't like a call and response thing, you know, like when you're at church, right? And you say one thing and then the pastor says the next thing and, you know, you go back and forth. Like, huh, that would be fun. We should start that in podcasting. We could. I mean, it's, it could be a new trend that we're starting. We're just so creative mm-hmm. like that. You know? Yeah. I mean, we could put these on like we could do YouTube live. And then I guess people could respond in the chat, but that's not the same. Well, yeah, because you know? we could so. we could be reading the books live on YouTube, and then people could ask us questions like, "Where are you right now? What what page are you on?" <laughs> <laughs> yes, nothing more exciting than watching somebody like look at a book <laughs> live. Like it's absolutely just riveting riveting uh, but there's got to be that youtube channel i mean people watch people play video games which i don't understand so i mean somebody reading a book let's do it you know i I just may try it (laughs) (laughs) i just want to see if i tunes in just to watch me send their reading Uh, there you go i usually don't react out loud though you know i'm not usually going "Ooh, wow wait what you know i'm just reading you know there are a few times where I'll be reading a book and there is an um, an actual reaction like I'll be like oh you know but for the most part no I I don't do that either I'm I'm not you know and then it would become one of those things where you felt like you had to it's kind of like people who do those quote unquote reaction videos to trailers you know and they film themselves weeping and gnashing their teeth, and it's just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> those, come on. Those drive me crazy. People were like, okay, I'm going to start the trailer. Here we go. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. W- wait, what's he doing there? What? What is that? Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. I see that. It's like, really? You don't watch trailers that way. Come on. No, nobody does. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, what's interesting is that there is not really any news uh, that's come out, you know, uh, which is okay. Uh, and we didn't have any comics to review here, so we won't be having a news section. Um, but before we dive into the book, we're getting back into the Typhon Pack series. And we're going to be covering Rough Beasts of Empire. And before we do that, I wanted to just say a huge thank you to our associate producers here at their Patreon Greg Rosier and Casey Petit for their support of the Trek FM network as well as Literary Treks and making sure that all the things that we do here keep coming to you. It is definitely an expensive thing to do 
And we truly do need your help. So uh, if you like Trek FM and you like shows like Literary Treks and you want more of them, go to patreon.com slash trekfm. See how you can be part of the team. Every little bit helps. Uh, but in the end, um, we just need your support. And so you could also uh, find us on Twitter at trekfm. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. We're on Instagram at trekfm. There's a listeners-only discussion group called the Babel Conference you can check out where you can talk to listeners from all over the world. Uh, and, you know, you can find uh, a place to send us an email over at trek.fm slash contact. If you want to send an email to Chris, Bruce, or I, you can do that there. So we'd really appreciate that. But, uh, Bruce, since we don't have any news, what do you say we just hop into some rough beasts? Why waste time? Let's do it. One of the interesting things about this book is that, you know, the original book that came out first uh, when they were published was what we did with Zero Sum Game. And I had meant to do this in chronological order, and I just got messed up, and I wasn't paying attention when we decided to uh, start covering the books. And so chronologically, this is actually the first book in the series. And part of that is is some of the connections that we see with how much time passes in this book, because this is really about the formation of the Typhon Pact, the creating of the Typhon Pact. And I really enjoyed this part of the book, kind of seeing how these nations that really don't have uh, particular interests other than being against the Federation and wanting to kind of be a check and balance to the Federation in general... Um, it was interesting seeing the meetings where they decide to, you know, come together and formalize this arrangement of, you know, being the Typhon Pact. I, I wish they, though, had they, they didn't have this, Bruce, but they didn't have a meeting on as to what they were going to call themselves. Um, I really felt like that we should have been in that meeting in the book. Um, but that part of the book was really interesting to me to got to kind of get to see these these nations formalize this agreement finally. Yeah, it's very difficult sometimes for me to wrap my head around the idea that these different races would actually get together uh, because they don't seem to trust. They have tra- you know, like trust issues, especially Romulans. Yeah. Like it's, it's amazing to me that the Romulans would actually want to form some kind of pact with some others because I wouldn't think they would trust them. But in a sense, yes, they still don't trust them. So you know that they're actually all going to be using one another. And so there's this case here where, for example, the Romulans are going to share their technology when it comes to cloaking devices. But there's other things behind these reasons why they're willing to do this. Because, of course, everybody's looking to gain something from it and eventually gain power. So they're willing to give a little to gain a lot later. Well, and, and it, like you said, I think I'm great to bring up the cloaking device thing because, uh, yes, they're going to share that. But the they have already, the Romulans themselves, have already moved forward with their cloaking technology. And so the cloaking technology that they're going to be giving them uh, is going to be the cloaking technology they currently have, not the upgrade. Right. So that if anything ever happens, they can institute the upgrade in their ships and therefore have an advantage. And and so there's all of this like back and forth with with how these countries, you know, these 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 uh, empires are trying to 
maneuver the best relationship they can get. And in all honesty, you know, this is a big deal for the Romulans because, you know, they are a split empire right now. And one of the things that they're hoping to get from this is food. Like they they need just they don't have enough uh, bread basket planets anymore uh, to sustain what we knew as the Romulan Star Empire, you know. And so that to me was really interesting as well that, you know, it there's there's a very basic need here that the Romulans have in in joining the Typhon Pact in the first place. Because I think the Imperial Romulan state has more of the planets with the food, and so there's some Mm -hmm. trade, but still... I mean, this is a time where the Borg invasion has just ended, and the Borg are gone, and the Federation's weak. And so when you look at the Romulans at this time, they are weakened by, like you said, the lack of food uh, supplies that they have. And then they have the split state, the split empire. So that weakens them. And then, which we'll get into later, we've got this whole reunification movement that's going on that could also bring change. So they're really in this state of change of figuring out where their place is and how to get themselves in a power position. So maybe that desperation is there to form the Typhon Pack and to join these other Mm -hmm governments in order to gain that power back or to manipulate their people to form the empire in the way that their leaders want it to be formed. Yeah, no, I mean, it is interesting because, again, this book does a great job uh, in the sense of helping continue the thread that we talked about in in our first Typhon book, uh, Pact book, which was this whole idea that they're the antithesis, basically, of the Federation, whereas the Federation people are coming to help and really better each other. Here, you're coming to see how you can use each other. Right. You know, this is truly a transactional relationship uh, instead of a more like, I, I guess you might call it like a covenant type of relationship where it's really it's for mutual benefit. Um, and in a way that, again, it, it's not about... We're really just trying to see how we can use these people, get as much as we can out of them and give as little as possible, you know. And so I, I think one of the the hallmarks uh, and the best parts of the book here is dealing with, you know, showing us how this Typhon pack gets created. And that really does, you know, Bruce, you touched on, but it really applies to the fact that a lot of this book has to deal with the Romulan reunification movement in the sense that and I don't mean that with with Spock even though he's a big part of this book and and the reunification movement for Vulcans and Romulans but the reunification movement of the Romulan states that now exist and Talara and Dinatra both have ideas about how to make this happen and I have to say to me the best part of this book I really was getting into all the Romulan intrigue here, and I thought it was really well written. It was fascinating to see how each of these factions are trying to one-up each other, um, and this, this again, this was my favorite part of the book. It's so funny because when I read this book almost 10 years ago, I remember some aspects of it, but not the full uh, novel, and so I went into this 
and there's the Ben Cisco storyline, which we'll get to a little later. And then there's this Spock Romulan storyline reunification, the different factions and whatever else is going on. And that was the part that I was a little least interested in. So as I was reading the book, I'd get excited, like, oh, I get to a chapter about Cisco, and then I get to a chapter about the Romulans. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. But to your point, all of a sudden that changed. I became all mm-hmm. about, Absolutely. like, give me more about what's going on with the Typhon Pack and the Romulans and the Empire and the state and the reunification and who's doing what and why and, and who's trying to backstab or who's trying to maneuver. It became really interesting to me. And without going too far ahead of things, I would be willing to strip out all the Cisco chapters and just have that in there of the Romulans and Spock and everything. I thought it was really, um, what's the word I want to use? Fascinating. No, I I couldn't agree with you more. And in many ways, I just wanted more of this because there is so much intrigue happening behind the scenes. I mean, Talora is is using um, the Tal Shiar. You know, she's got her contacts like Sila, who's back, who's uh, working with the the leader of the Tal Shiar to uh, assassinate people, and then of course, you know, she assassinates the leader of the Tal Shiar and becomes the chairman of Tal Shiar because of her actions. You know, I mean, that's one side. I wish we would have gotten to spend much more time with Dinatra and her reaction to everything that is happening because to me, she's a really fascinating character and it actually saddens me that from Nemesis and then the books that we have her, we really don't get to spend as much time as I would have loved with her and she truly is a character to which I think, you know, and even Cisco makes this uh, uh, recognition in his head, you know, that he feels like, and I think Spock says this too, because of uh, his conversation or the conversation about her, but like, that she could have been somebody who had been really good for the Romulan Empire, right? Like, she was the one who who truly has the best interests of the Romulan people at heart. Uh, and... I was just disappointed that we don't get to spend more time with her because, again, like you said, there's so much happening here. And I was just blown away by how kind of relevant this book felt in that Spock has a movement, which is the reunification movement of Vulcans and Romulans. He sees an opportunity to decriminalize it uh, and basically help you know, the Romulan people find a way to reunify themselves because he tells Talora, look, you know, the best way to get the people interested in reunification uh, is that they have to be unified as a Romulan people first before we could ever unify. And so basically my message can help your message. And what was fascinating to see is how I think in some ways Spock begins to regret his involvement because Talora completely takes that idea and runs with it politically by creating these quote-unquote truths out of lies. And she really just kind of creates it in the end like a mob mentality. And that mob mentality is really unifying these crowds Uh, of people who are calling for the reunification of the Romulans. And yet, 
it becomes this kind of emotionally driven thing divorced from any logic, right? And I was just like, wow, I that feels very relevant to, you know, some of the things that we've seen over the last year and a half. Because, yeah, we see Spock actually using Talora to achieve his objective, and that is for the reunification of Vulcans and Romulans. So he convinces her, as you mentioned, so that he can come out of hiding. The movement can be out in public and not be illegal, and people won't get arrested for demonstrating this reunification movement. And what it does is it it turns around, it spins around and goes against him because what he realizes is he convinced her and used her to get his way, but then reality, she is actually using him to get her way. Yep. And then he has to go back underground with the movement because he knows that as soon as she achieves her objective, she's now going to turn on him and turn on the movement. Right. And all of a sudden they're going to start getting arrested because they're out in the open now. Now we have faces to this movement mm-hmm. and, and you know, they're brought out now into public that now when uh, the empire is going to try to stop the movement and arrest these people and, and lock them away, they know what they look like. They know where they are. They know what they're doing. And he really got suspicious when he saw all these different movements, these demonstrations actually happening on other planets within the Romulan system. And he and his movement weren't the ones organizing these. And it's like, uh-oh, like somebody else is pulling the strings behind this and it's not us. And yeah. Um, but the the good thing on both sides for Spock and Delore is that this will, the objective is to bring the Romulan people together. And they both wanted that. It's just how you go about doing it is the question. Yeah. And I mean, what you just said about how like there is this uh, proliferation of, you know, protests across different worlds in both sides of the, you know, part of the Romulan empires. Right. And they like Spock and his movement realized we're not pulling those strings. And it turns out it's to Laura. She is pulling those strings. She's having people incite these um, mob run, basically just uh, protests that are turning violent as well. And again, I just was so struck by this this idea of how people it's so easy to create truth, quote unquote, out of a lie and to incite masses of people to begin to think one way and part of that is because when you're in that type of arena it becomes so emotionally driven you divorce from all logic and that is the antithesis to what Spock is looking for right he's looking to bring logic to the Romulan people and yet Talora is doing the exact opposite which she is inciting people to think not of logic at all but only go with their emotion and to fuel that fire and it creates this massive problem and 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 it's such a big problem in fact that you know in this Romulan reunification it's Dinatra who does the more virtuous thing and reaches out to have these peace talks basically about ways to bring the empire back together and her goal actually is to take herself and Talora out of the running to be the next Praetor and allow the Romulan people then to choose. Um, and then, of course, once that happens, she's arrested and thrown in jail. 
Um, and in the end, like we find out that the Romulan people, these top these top people aren't actually the ones pulling the strings. It's somebody else. Right. Right. Yes, because we find out that there's the Zen Kethi that are the ones that are kind of pulling the strings, that they're the ones that are now infiltrating into the Romulans and trying to control who's going to lead, who, how they want to form. Because again, it's their way of gaining power that in this Typhon Pact, the Zenkethi can then gain power on their own if they can control others, while at the same time the Romulans are looking to do the same thing. So everybody's in a power play. Yeah, I, I, to me, like, I absolutely uh, love the this, this section. The fact that the Zenkethi, they want a Romulan people who are going to be basically more malleable, uh, less fiery, and ones who are more willing to to allow other parts of the Typhon Pact, like the Zenkethi, to be the leaders of the group. And it is very interesting because who they decide to get uh, this this um, Romulan Gelcamamore, uh, I think you know we. We've read ahead, you know, both of us. Right. It's fascinating to see how this really ends up turning on them in the end. Um, I, I just, I think it, it's really cool. Like they have this desire, they have this desire for what they want to have happen with this person, and in the end, it's going to come back to bite them in the butt, really. Um, and it just kind of goes to show to me, I think, is just how. All of this backstabbing, all of this, um, these machinations, all of these, you know, Machiavellian schemes don't really work out in the end the way you want them to. And that's one of the things I think, again, we come to that the Typhon Pact in the end is doomed to fail because it's not out for the best interests of its members. It's each member is out for their own best interests. And that doesn't end up creating a winning society in the end. So, well, yeah, because this isn't a new type of federation. It's not. It's it's different. It's just it's just a partnership. It's not a new unifying government between all these different species. And because this is a partnership, it's also a partnership of one trying to outdo the other. So it's due it's doomed to fail. It's never going to work. And I don't think any of them actually expect it to be a long-term thing. I think they all look at it as a temporary thing because mm-hmm. a lot of That's them actually point. want to control the other anyway. They want to be the dominant power. They're just using the others to try to get there and to try to go up against the Federation and the Klingons. It's, it, we, ne- we need to point that out, too, because the Klingons aren't part of this group, and this group doesn't even want the Klingons involved. They look at the Klingons and the Federation as best mm-hmm. buds, and they're thinking, oh, well, you know, we'll all get together, and there's more buds here hanging out than over there, so we'll have more power mm-hmm. and all this. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's doomed to fail. It's not going to work. And Camamore, to me comes across as maybe the best leader for the Romulans. Mm-hmm. Donatra, I think, would be perfect for it. But I don't think Camomore has the selfishness to do what they themselves want, for sure. It's mm-hmm. just what's best for the people. But the problem is then 
they're easily dissuade and uh, controlled by others. Yeah, I mean, this is something that, again, I think this was really the the most fascinating part of the book. You know, all of this political intrigue. Um, and again, I think this is one of the places where Spock and his reunification movement were used to the best effect. Uh, and I found it really, really fascinating um, to see. And so I think in in many ways... That leads us to the other side of the book, which is this is the book that's going to give us Cisco. Uh, we, uh, you know, start the Cisco story with um, the fact that he had rejoined Starfleet with the Borg conflict. You know, uh, Cassidy didn't want him joining Starfleet, but he decides to do it anyway. And I would say to me, uh, and and we've I think alluded to this fact many a times on the show, Bruce, you and I, which is that I have massive issues with what they do with Cisco. And honestly, they pretty much all start here. (laughs) Yes. I've known this for quite a while, Matt, that you've had issues with this. Because when I picked up this book and I started reading, I was like, oh, Oh, this is when it happens. It's this book. Oh, I'm not looking forward to this conversation. <laughs> but um, that's what makes it fun, though. I have to tell mm-hmm. you that I remember when I first read this book and we find out that Cisco leaves his wife, Cassidy, and his daughter, Rebecca, behind so he can go pursue further career into Starfleet as a captain of a starship, the USS Robinson. I was put off by it the first time I read it. Now, the second time I read it, I was put off by it again. But this time I knew what I was expecting, and I was trying to read this wondering why we had to go there. Why does this have to be done? And I think I'm still uncomfortable with it, but the fact that he's cut off from the prophets has a lot to do with it. I think the prophets gave him more meaning, and having that loss really affected him. And then when he loses others through the Borg confrontations and his father dying, it seems that he has fallen into a state of depression. But what I don't like is that he decides to return to Starfleet and not talk to Cassidy about it. He just goes ahead and does it and waits for a period of time before he returns home to meet with her and then just drops the bomb on her in the first hour of the visit and she kicks him out within just minutes and he doesn't resist and he like he wanted that to happen and that just doesn't feel like cisco right it doesn't just not feel like cisco i think the storyline doesn't make any sense to me uh you know there's no way the prophets would just completely abandon cisco why would they have allowed him to spend all of that time in the celestial temple with them and and especially in their version of time, in the sense that you know he, Cisco's gone for like what eight months or ten months or whatever, yeah. uh, but you know uh, for them it's an eternity, you know, and so it doesn't make any sense to me that he would return and then not really have a ton to do. And a part of this too becomes an issue because the whole ascendant storyline we didn't know then, we do know it now. Because 
we've gotten that story at this point. Uh, but they just allude to all these things that have happened. And I don't even remember that being a good explanation for a lot of the things that we get here with Cisco. And and so to me, I I was always the, the biggest problem that I have with this, um, first and foremost, is the fact that we stripped Cisco of everything that made him special. One, he was not a captain on a starship. Two, he is basically become a god by the end of the series. And then we took all of that away from him, and he never really regains any semblance of Cisco-ness in the sense that part of what made Cisco a really interesting character was he became this person who became a believer in the prophets and then he became a prophet because he was a prophet in in many ways and so like then we never do anything with that storyline again really like he just we have this whole period of time that's going to happen and then like he gets relieved of his duties later on as the emissary and it's just like it's so unfulfilling and I don't know why. Don't know why. Um, I don't know why. He, it feels like Cisco's already had to go through the Valley of the Shadow of Death before, just through the series alone. And I don't feel like we ever legitimize what we put Cisco through here. And he just comes out the other side. Just another starship captain, which is super lame, especially when you could just make him an admiral, put him in the Deep Space Nine sector, you know, in the Bajoran sector. He could base off of Bajor, you know, um, and he can live at home. And still deal with the prophets. Still have that whole And still deal with the prophets and all of that stuff, right? And it it just feels like they weren't willing to touch that as an opportunity because it is much more difficult to write that type of Star Trek, right? You know, I mean, um, it's definitely way more difficult. But I just... And then I, I have the same issue that, you know, that honestly, Avery Brooks had an issue with it, with... Cisco leaving at the end because he felt like it was just another black man leaving his child and his child to be right because Cassidy was pregnant he really didn't like that um but he also knew you know they Cisco could come back Cisco does it again he abandons his family again because he thinks he and and this is what I don't get is that he thinks he's doing it for their benefit and really like bad logic wise like he takes this prophecy he he knows prophecy he understands that it can mean many different things he's already seen that play out in his life how somebody thought one a prophecy meant this and it means something almost completely different you know because we misread things all the time and just the way he comes down with this like he feels like he's doing the right thing how many people rationalize doing stupid things like oh i have to leave my family it's the right thing for them that's not really the right thing for them it's the easy thing for you no i mean i agree i agree for the most part but i'm trying to figure out i i i what would sit more what would sit well better for me is if this book came out 
and said book one of three or part one or whatever, because I would feel like, okay, there's a reason behind this, which we don't really, we don't get the satisfaction at the end of like, ah, this is why this had to take place. And I know there's future books that we'll get to eventually that kind of address some of this. And I don't remember all the details of it. And I don't know why the prophets would cut off the relationship with Cisco, except for the fact that they didn't have a relationship with him to begin with before he got to deep space nine. And he's accomplished, I guess his mission that the prophets needed him for as an emissary and maybe didn't feel like they needed him anymore. What I found interesting though, about this story is what you were just saying. He's just, you know, a starship captain. He doesn't have the station that made him special. He's not the emissary anymore. It's like we're taking him back to where he was before Deep Space Nine. And I think it's interesting yep. that he then shaves his face and grows his hair. And he looks like the Cisco of old. So it almost to me mm-hmm. says as if there's two Cisco's and we're going back to see the old Cisco at this moment. Right. And again, I don't know why we need to do that, but I can't wait to get back mm-hmm. to those other books and really dig into it and see if there really is a good reason for this. And I think you hit on a really good point, especially with the fact that, yeah, he shaves, lets his hair grow. And one, that's kind of the antithesis of everything that uh, Avery Brooks wanted for the character. You know, he found the facial hair. He found the, the shaved head to be very powerful for him as a black man. And then we strip him of all of that here in this book. And I'm not saying that it's racially motivated. I'm just saying, though, we truly have regressed this character to a, a really... Basically, we put him back to the same place he was when he came to Deep Space Nine, a sad sack. Yeah. And I don't need to see that again because I already saw him overcome all of those things. I don't need to be back here. And so this is where I find this to be a really bad choice to to put Cisco in because it's not a new story. It's one we've already seen. And we saw them do an incredible job, obviously, throughout seven uh, seasons of Deep Space Nine of building this character from being the guy who was crushed by the loss of his wife and not sure how to raise his son to becoming a man who's completely confident in himself, who he believes uh, himself to be confident in his uh, his decisions, uh, an incredible father, embracing his his life as a commander of this station in a place he never wanted to be and making it home like all of that happens in deep space nine. I don't need to see this story again. And, and then the end result will be, he's just the captain of the Robinson. He's getting basically like Picard's leftovers. Oh, it's a galaxy class starship too. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's lame. It's super lame. Uh, and, and so, Instead of forging new uh, opportunities for him, because remember at this point, um, as we're writing this, Will Riker has not been made an admiral yet. So Cisco would have been our first character that we've seen progress to admiral like this and really spent time with. You know, because we also haven't gotten Kirsten Byers books at this point either. Right. So I just. I don't get it. And I and I reread this book and I was like, oh, I just because bad things have happened to you, Ben, doesn't mean that you're the cause of all of those bad things. It's like 
Cisco has gotten so used to being the thing that the world revolves around that he didn't realize that the world doesn't revolve around him here. Right. Um, and this, the, you know, he's, he, it's not his fault. So it really frustrates me that uh, where we go and I don't remember this getting better. I only remember this getting more frustrating until I think it, I think it's plague the night and ra- raise the dawn. Yes. Where Cisco, that we kind of put this to rest, but it's, it's, it's not satisfying. So, yeah, there's so many so many strengths in this book, with the Romulans and the Typhon Pack, everything we were talking about before, and this just yeah, it doesn't really even work for me. Um, and, and I I like all the points you mentioned, and I I agree with that for the most part. Why? And I think that's the big question for me is why? Why did we have to mm-hmm. do this? Like. I don't even find it all that interesting. I find it frustrating. If I, I find I just want to yell at Cisco and go, what the heck are you doing? What is wrong with you, man? Like yeah. you're with your family. Like this is, this is the thing that you lost. You lost your first wife. You know, your son has mm-hmm. grown, he's married, he's gone off. You, you have a second chance and you have a daughter now. Like, don't leave, leave them. Sure, in the series at one point, he's told by the prophets that he'll experience sorrow if he marries Cassidy. Well, he's been with her for, what, three or four years since he returned? Yep. And now he decides it's time to leave because some people died in a Borg invasion and his father then passed away. So that's a sign that all bad things happen around him. That almost sounds like he, mm-hmm. he's being superstitious. And and maybe that's yeah. where it comes in with the prophets being gone. And he, he feels this way. He's just not in his right mind because he's lost. Mm-hmm. But again, why do we have to go there? And I kept waiting to see what the connection was between that storyline and this Romulan storyline. And there mm-hmm. really wasn't any. It's, it feels like it's two different no. books. Yeah. I, I think you nailed one of the major issues with the book as well is that the story thing we have for Ben doesn't really even make sense. Um, and again, I'll, I'll say, I think it, you know, when he goes to Dinatra, he's like, I'm not an admiral. I, I'm not a diplomat. I can't, you know, and it's like, well, this would have made so much more sense story wise, why Cisco would be sent there that he was an admiral and he had experience with dealing with Romulans because of the, you know, experience of the Dominion War. Um, obviously, him bringing the Romulans into the the war uh, is done in a much more underhanded way um, than he would ever want the Romulans to know. But it doesn't really... This, again, it's like, you're absolutely right. It didn't need to be Ben Sisko that went. It could have been literally anybody in the Star Trek universe, you know, that was a captain. It could have been any no-name captain, you know? Like, it didn't need to be Ben Sisko. And so, I think it would have been much stronger if he had gone there, again, as a new admiral. And, you know, they're like, look, I know your sector is the Bajoran sector, but we need an admiral that has familiarity with the Romulans to go and talk with the Natra and... See what's see if we can get the lay of the land. What's really going on here? And it you know because he doesn't really do anything there. I, I mean you know like they have a conversation and then that's it. You know and so 
it is very frustrating. And then I do have to ask you too, Bruce, because we get these flashbacks with Cisco where uh, he's battling the Zen Kathy, and we know that he has this history. We know that from Deep Space Nine, the series. But how do these fit in at all? Like, I didn't understand what they had to do with anything in the book. I don't either. I read somewhere that the, I think it's only like two or three chapters that are the flashback. I read somewhere that this storyline in the flashback was supposed to be a lost era novel that got canceled. And so this was a scene or scenes that were going to be in that novel that were put into this one. I don't really see the connection too much except for the fact that I think, again, it may be trying to show you that this is the old Cisco in this flashback Mm -hmm. and the new Cisco is the old Cisco again. But if if anything, there's a difference, and I I don't remember the line, but there there was a point where the um in the flashback, Cisco was on this mission, and he was thinking about he wants to be with Jennifer and Jake. You know that he could be right. he could die, and he would lose them, and they would lose him, and mm-hmm. he wants to survive so he can be there for them. And I'm thinking, right. and now he's got Cassie and Rebecca, and he's leaving them. Like, so even though he's kind of regressing back to his old self, he's still not even his old self, (laughs) you know, it's a, it's a strange contradiction of, of these two Cisco's that are similar yet different. And I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. And I, I I would have liked a better resolution of why Cisco is where he is and why he's doing what he's doing. I, I just wasn't getting that. I, you know, I think you just nailed it though, as to this does not seem to fit well with the rest of the story. And part of it is because it doesn't, it doesn't even work well with the story that we're being given, right? Like it doesn't play well because it doesn't seem to narratively fit with the, the thematic element of where Cisco is, right? You're like, well, but Cisco isn't even the person he was back in the day and that is disappointing that we are at this place where this book doesn't really gel and i think you know we have a whole side of this book that i think really works and then the i would say unfortunately the other side of this book doesn't work at all and that i think is is frustrating because we really did have a a great storyline with the the Romulan side, and and obviously uh, I you know think that now where we're gonna go, um, I'm really interested to see you know more of Gel as the leader of the Romulans and and what happens with the Typhon Pact because it's it, at least this book is definitely living up to the Typhon Pact logo. Yes, definitely. There's one thing, though, I will say that I did start to pick up on with between these two storylines that I thought work, in a sense, well together, because what we're seeing with the Romulans and the Typhon Pack and with the reunification are people who are trying to pull themselves together. They're trying to reunite. They're trying to form one big base of people. So it's all about getting Mm -hmm. together where Cisco is all about moving away, you know, go mm. moving away from those that he loves, moving, not having a relationship or being tight with his crew that's on the Robinson. Mm-hmm. You know, he's cut off from the prophets. 
So I'm thinking it's right. interesting that Cisco is being pulled away from people where the Romulans are trying to pull together. And I don't know if I'm just like trying to read too much into this, but I thought, is this supposed to be like a yin and yang? But the story just never feels like it really resolves that at the end for me. Mm. I mean, it's a good point because it's all it it could be there. And I mean, there is a a section in the book, you know, with Cisco not wanting to connect with his crew and, you know, basically cloistering himself in his office, you know, and, and um, being a loner. And, you know, he should know better. Again, he's legitimately learned this lesson because that's kind of the same thing that he did at Deep Space Nine in the beginning, right? He kind of held himself back. A little bit, you know, uh, and the only one he really kind of got close to it all was Dax because Dax, he already knew Dax. And then as the seasons progress in Deep Space Nine, he continues to get more and more familial with his crew to the point where, you know, he becomes friends with Kira. You know, he's having people over to dinner, you know, with him and Cassidy. You know, it's like he learns to find life again. And so the fact that he doesn't understand this is is crazy to me and i'm gonna make this comparison but it's the same problem i have with luke skywalker in the sequel trilogy he's already supposed to have learned those lessons by what he's gone through and now he's trying to learn them again and that's not exciting narratively it's funny you said that because i was thinking earlier that you might bring up luke skywalker (laughs) than you finally did um it gets back to what i was thinking earlier why like i don't I'm just looking at this book alone. I'm not looking like, oh, well, there may be other books. And, you know, right. like this is a standalone book. There's nothing on here yeah, that says absolutely. to be continued. So when I look at this as a standalone book, I think, why did we choose to just to take Cisco in this direction so that by the end of the book, he is distant with his own family. He's distant with his own crew. But, oh, we get a little indication that he's going to start opening up to his crew a little is that this is interesting this is something i want to see yeah. in this character i just to your point he learned the lesson so what's the lesson now right yeah i mean and and in the end i to me you know sad sack cisco is not exciting so i with hair that that's frustrating we like him without so. hair and a goatee <laughs> exactly exactly so i i guess um it does them down to the question, what do you rate this book? That's a tough one because I love one of the storylines and we know which one that is. And I'm confused and dismayed by the other storyline. And I, and I really thought I would come to grips with it this time. And I still don't because I just don't like the direction. It's not that I don't like the writing in this book. I do. It's just, I don't like the direction that the Cisco character was carried in this book, but I'm, am looking forward to the future books and see how this plays out and see how I feel at that point. But right now I'm not liking what happened to Cisco, but I'm loving the whole Romulan storyline and Spock being involved and Sela, who I'm not a big fan of. I got excited to see that she's being woven into all this and the whole Typhon pack. Very interesting to me. So I would give this because one is so strong and the other one not so much, I'd put it maybe, oh gosh, three and a half goatees out of five. Hmm, that's really interesting. So, 
I mean, it is the tale of two books, and uh, or at least two sides of the book, and the 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 I would I would I would rate this book two and a half, but I can't. And 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 the reason is is we pinpointed some issues to which the storylines just don't even really connect. And so even though I like one part of this book and I don't like the other, the problem is is the other part doesn't actually really connect well with the part I like anyway. And so to me, this is two out of five broken marriages because that's it it just never finds a way to be cohesive as a book in the first place. It just feels like a lump of ideas in one side uh, and greatness on the other side, and the two don't ever really meet. So it's disappointing, but I'm interested to to continue on with the Typhon Pack series. The next uh, book we'll be covering is Seize the Fire with the Titan, so I'm really excited to get to that. So we'll see what comes. When this book was chosen for us to read, I was really excited because I love the works of David R. George III. And this is probably the one book that's the weakest, but I am looking forward to his others in this series and the other Typhon Pack books. And so, yeah, those are coming soon. Well, Bruce, it is always fun to get together to talk about Star Trek books, regardless of whether we love them or not. It just creates fascinating conversations and, you know, we got a chance to talk about how a book that's this old still has relevancy today. So that's always fun. But Bruce, if you know people want to catch up with you and see what else you've got going on, where can they find you? Well, if you guys are really that interested, I'm on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral, then the underline Rex. I'm also on Instagram at Admiral Rex, although I don't really post much on there at all, but I'm there. And then also you can find me occasionally on the Star Wars Report, and then you can always find me on the Positively Trek podcast with Dan Gunther. And you can find me on uh, all the social media platforms that are out there that I happen to be a part of. Just search for Matt Rushing Zero Two. You can find me. Please, you know, follow me uh, and strike up a conversation. We'd love to know what you'd think here. Uh, you can also find me here on the network doing the Six Hundred Two Club, of course, which is our general geek show talking about all of the fandoms we love. In that same feed, you'll also find Snyder Cuts with John Mills as we're talking about all the things Zack Snyder has directed, uh, and we're eagerly anticipating at this point his Army of the Dead coming out. Uh, you can also find me doing The Orb with Chris Jones as we talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And then, of course, you could check me out over on the Nerd Party Network. We finished Owl Post, Drea Kaufman and I, where we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series and doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills. It's a Star Wars podcast, and each and every week we just love talking Star Wars together. But thank you so much for joining us, and until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.